Good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is awesome to have you with us today. Uh, loving so far this brown Christmas that we're having, and uh, I'm, I, I'm okay with it. I know some people are like, ah, oh, white Christmas all the way, but uh, it's coming. Don't worry. It'll get here. Uh, I want to say hello to everybody joining us online. And uh, if you're in a parent viewing room, it's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. A couple of quick things. Uh, one is um, we did a legacy offering several weeks ago. We do this every, uh, every year in November. And it's a way for us to raise money above and beyond just you know, what we normally do to give towards a specific project. And this year, we're, we're giving towards um, building a church in uh, Sucre, Colombia, uh, a community in Colombia. And... The goal there was like, man, we just want to have 100% participation, give 100% of it away. And uh, many of you have been asking like, hey, where, where are we at in that? So I just wanted to update you. Uh, we, we'll keep it open through the end of the year. But uh, so far we brought in, this is, this is not a part of our regular. This is just above and beyond that you all have given, uh, man, $56,000 uh, towards that uh, church in Columbia. So that's super awesome. And I just want to say thanks for your generosity. And if you were wondering, like, I wanted to give to that, I just, I forgot about it or it went on the back burner or whatever, that's still available. That's open through the end of the year. You can give to that. And uh, we'd love to have you still participate in that. And um, that would be awesome. The other thing I just want to mention is uh, because Christmas Eve services, because of where they fall Saturday, Sunday, uh, we are doing reserve a spot. And... Some of them are starting to fill up. So uh, if you're like, uh, man, I really want to go at either 9.30 or 11 on Sunday morning on Christmas Eve, you need to reserve that spot now because those services are going to fill up. Uh, And uh, we are like uh, probably close to almost 1,500 people signing up already, registering. And we know that a lot of people register the very last week. So um, there's uh, room on some of the Saturday services. Uh, If you're like, you know what? 8 a.m. on Sunday sounds great. There's some spots there. But if you want to make sure that you have a seat and your family has a seat that's not 8 a.m. on Christmas Eve, then uh, I would encourage you to jump on your app, uh, go to our website, register, and uh, make sure you do that because you're going to want to make sure that you have seats for you and your family and anybody that you're inviting. And I would encourage you to invite someone because people will say yes to an invitation on Christmas that they may not say yes to any other time of the year. And we have uh, such a great message of hope that we want to share with them. So uh, this week we're wrapping up this series, Reasons for the Season. And um, I gotta tell you, I don't know if this has happened to anybody else, but we were decorating a, a few weeks ago and you know, pulled out the tree and pulled out all the decorations out of storage. And has this ever happened to anybody where you pull everything out and then you find in everything that's sort of packed away for the rest of the year a gift that you were supposed to give someone the previous year that just got packed up with everything? Anybody? So we did, that happened to us this last year. A few weeks ago, we opened everything up. We're like, oh, let's decorate the tree. And we're getting all the decorations out. And there was a box. And, and my wife and I were like, oh, we were supposed to give that to the kids last year. Totally spaced it. And we felt horrible. Because I, I think they would have loved that puppy. <laughs> but what are you going to do, you know? So uh, we're in the third week of a series called Reasons for the Season. And I got to tell you... Um, For most of us, when we look back on our childhood, uh, man, this is the best time of year, wasn't it? I mean, you could hardly sleep, especially I remember for us Christmas Eve, uh, you know, all of us siblings would gather in the hallway, throw all our mattresses in the hallway and sleep all there in the hallway and just like we couldn't get to sleep at night and our parents would holler up to us to go to bed, you know, and we're just like, we can't sleep because all we could think about the next day was what when you're a kid? Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
uh, of course, presents, right? You're like, oh, what am I getting tomorrow? And so you, then you talk to your friends and share all the stuff you got with them, and then share all the stuff they got with you, and, uh, and, and you're wondering, you know, all you had to do for me when I was a kid, it was so simple. All I had to do pre-internet days was just get the JCPenney catalog, circle the stuff I wanted, give that to mom and dad. They delivered it to Santa. They all trimmed it down together, and then, you know, it all showed up. It's just great. And uh, here's what's interesting. The things that make it so wonderful, like it's the most wonderful time of year. And the things that make it so wonderful for kids, like all the chaos and, and, and the presence and the traveling and being with family, these are all the exact same things that have the potential to ruin it for adults. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and we end up thinking things like, um, I just wish that everyone would get along this year. Uh, that's always my mom's wish at Christmas. I just hope everyone gets along this year. Or we think things like, Man, I wish they wouldn't come so late and leave so early. Or, I wish they would leave sooner. Or uh, things like, uh, I'm tired of navigating around this weirdness. Every time we get together with this person, there's always this tension. There's always this awkwardness. Or, why do I have to talk about this every time we get together? And for all of the great things about the Christmas season, it also surfaces relational tension during this time of year. Uh, from, you know, it's like it starts in Thanksgiving through the New Year. It's like there's this relational tension. I don't know if it's because of uh, heightened chaos and, uh, you know, just the busyness of the season. And yet, if we're honest, uh, we sing about a God of peace, but for many of us, this is a season that's filled with chaos and stress and relational tension. So we all have our coping mechanisms, right? For some of you, maybe it's just you wear a happy face during all the Christmas get-togethers, and you're just like, we are just going to have fun, so put on a happy Christmas face, and gosh darn it, just smile, and let's get through it. And for others of you, it's like you make a beeline right to the adult eggnog. You know, it's like, hey, daddy's making a Santa shot. All right. <laughs> and maybe you just avoid getting together with family at all. And uh, it's just not worth the energy that it would take. And you're like, you know, it's just not worth the conflicts that would arise. It's, it's not worth being miserable during the holidays because it's just complicated. And that's the word we use. It's just complicated. But the reality is this. It's really not that complicated. It's just uncomfortable. That's a probably a more accurate description. So let, let me ask you this question. Do you have any complicated or uncomfortable during this time of year? Do you have any family that you'd say, it's complicated, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, there's tension? Do you, do you have people that you get together with? Maybe it's, maybe it's at your work or maybe it's a, you know, a get-together and you're like, man, every time we get together with these people, it's just there's, it's complicated and uncomfortable. Because every time we get together at the holidays, here's these reminders. Christmas tends to remind us that we all have problems we can't solve. And you get together with a group of family, and you get together with a group of people, and you're like, man, this same problem comes up every single time, and we haven't been able to solve it in the last 15 years, so let's tackle it this year. And you realize not only do we have problems we can't solve, but there's people that you can't control. And you go, you know, I've been trying to get these people to behave in a certain way, and I'm starting to realize I'm never going to be able to control their behavior. And on top of that, you start to surface expectations that we can't meet. And you realize, no matter, man, uh, no matter what I say, no matter what I do, it's just not going to be the right thing. And no matter what you wear, no matter how many presents you wrap, or, or you know, it's, you're just going to feel judged. And like, you're not going to be able to live up to some set of unspoken expectations. And here's what makes it even worse. At a certain point, I start to realize I'm the problem that I can't solve. And I am actually the person that I can't control. And I am actually uh, the one setting expectations on other people that they can't meet. And the point is this, Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate this event that if we're to take it seriously, if we're to be honest with ourselves, would change everything about this dynamic of complicated and uncomfortable. 
And the reason I say take it seriously is because we just have a tendency, especially living in the era in human history that we live in, we have a tendency to sort of romanticize Christmas a little bit. Uh, you know, especially if, if Christmas was just a wonderful time of year for you growing up as a kid, we have a tendency to sort of shave off the rough edges. We have a tendency to kind of uh, make it just a little bit more glamorous than we should. But if we take seriously the implications of the message of Christmas, it has the potential to move all of us past complicated and uncomfortable. If we take the the birth of Jesus seriously, it actually removes our excuses to not embrace complicated and uncomfortable. And so we've been talking about the reasons for the season over the last several weeks, that that really when it comes down to it, we, we use this phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. But if we're honest, you and I are the reason for the season. You're the reason for the season, and I'm the reason for the season, because if we weren't such a mess, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. But he did come because we needed a savior. And so Jesus came, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. So when it comes right down to it, Christmas is actually for our benefit. So you're the reason for the season, and I'm the reason for the season, and it benefits us. In fact, we said this the very first week, the reason, one of the reasons Jesus came was to bless the world that Jesus came to bless the whole world. And so even though we celebrate Christmas 2,000 years after that first Christmas, the promise was made 2,000 years before the first Christmas, that God made this promise to a man named Abram that through his descendants, all of the world would be blessed, that every person on earth would be blessed through his descendants. And so when Jesus came into the world, he was one of the descendants of Abraham. And so through, through Jesus coming into our world, God kept his promise to bless the world that every person is blessed because Jesus came into this world. And then we said this last week, another reason Jesus came was to demonstrate what God is like. Jesus came into this world to show us what God is like, and in Jesus' own words, he would say things like, you know the way to the Father because you, you know me. You, you've seen the Father because you've seen me. You know the Father because you know me. And his disciples were confused and going, oh, what are you talking about? And Jesus would say, look, I'm the way I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm, I'm the way to the Father. If you, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, you look at what he taught, you look at how he lived, you look at how he loved. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of who God is. And if you're trying to figure out what God is like, and whatever, whatever you're sort of searching in, whether it's some, something you read or something you learned in college or some upbringing or some religious practice or habit, if it doesn't include Jesus, if Jesus isn't the lens that you're looking through to figure out what God is like, you're looking in the wrong place. So he came to bless the world. He came to demonstrate what God is like. And then Jesus came to remove our excuses, to remove our excuses. At Christmas, we celebrate God drawing near to us. God becoming flesh and bone. In fact, when the angel came to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, uh, the, the angel, in announcing the birth of Jesus to Mary, borrows from the Hebrew scriptures and borrows from one of their prophets, Isaiah, to make this announcement. And quoting Isaiah, the angel says this, look, the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. Whenever God changed someone's name or whenever God declared a name, then it was indicative of him, uh, that person sort of fulfilling God's purpose in the world. They were fulfilling God's purpose. So all throughout the scriptures, you see different times where someone's name is changed and there's a meaning behind it. 
And the same thing is true with Jesus. As the story of Jesus unfolds, you find Jesus is the personification of God with us. This word, Emmanuel, God is with us. The life of Jesus demonstrates and communicates that God is with us. Now, if that's true, and I believe it's true, if that's true, if God came to be with us in spite of us, then we lose our excuse to remain distant from others simply because it's complicated and uncomfortable. And what excuse do I have to distance myself from other people whose dysfunction or whose insecurity or maybe whose sin is different than mine? There's an author named Philip Yancey. In one of his books, he writes this. It's, it's a brilliant quote. He says, Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. Isn't that true? I mean, let me tell you something that I know is true about you because I know it's true about me. And if you're not a Jesus follower, if you're like, I'm just exploring faith, or maybe you're watching online, you come across this, you're going to love this because you're like, that's so true. They do that. That's them. You get more jacked up. You get more amped up. You get more riled up about the sins of other people than you do about your own. Isn't that a fact? And here's what's so amazing about it. You get more amped up about the sins of other people, and oftentimes it's groups of people. It's not even individuals or even people you know. It's just they, they, they. That group over there, they do this, they do that. And you get all amped up, and I get all amped up and jacked up and riled up because they, 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 and they shouldn't, and they should always. And it's something that we saw, some group of people that we saw on some news network somewhere. And here's what's fascinating about this. Have you ever gotten as passionate about your own sin as you do about the sins of other people that you're not guilty of and that you haven't committed? Like, well, those people. And it's amazing how, what level of passion rises up in you for your own sins. The answer is no. The same is true of me. And, and I, I got to tell you, if anybody should be, you know, sort of riled up about their own sins, it should be a pastor. I'm a professional Christian. Well, I'm telling you, I should like, it should mess me up, but it's so much more fun to get riled up about the sins of other people, isn't it? Now, here's what's amazing. This is even more strange. And again, if you're like, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm just exploring this thing, but yes, so true. This is even more strange. Followers of Jesus tend to get more angry over people who aren't even following Jesus who sin. And they don't even subscribe to our worldview. They're like, well, I don't claim to follow Jesus anyways. That's not even a, in my book, that's not even a sin. You're like, yeah, but you know, uh, that's a sin. And we get more jacked up and amped up and riled up over that. Try to figure that one out. They don't even subscribe to our belief system, but we get upset that they don't stick to a belief system that they never subscribe to to begin with. Isn't that odd? Emmanuel, God is with us to remove the excuses from us. See, I think about it like this. Jesus reserved all of his criticism, all of his most pointed criticism was reserved for people who were self-righteous. Self-righteous meaning this, I'm good with God because I have behaved the right way. That's self-righteousness. And Jesus reserved all of his most harsh criticism for that group of people. In fact, at one point, Jesus tells this story. He tells a story about a a priest and a, a, a tax collector. Now, again, in their day, if you, if you don't know this about first century tax collectors, they're traitors. They're traitors to their own people. They worked for the Roman government and they were traitors to their own people. They cheated their own people to line their own pockets. 
And so they were, they were hated. In fact, if you read any of the eyewitness accounts, they describe it like this, that there are, uh, Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors. So they had like their own special bracket of sinning. Sinners went to bed at night and went, at least I'm not a tax collector. And so tax collector is like the lowest of the low. And Jesus tells a story. There's a priest. There, 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 there's a, a teacher, a religious leader. And then there's a tax collector. And, and the... The religious leader prays, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And he lists all of his behaviors. God, here's all the things that I've done so that you and I, I know I'm good with you because look at all the things I've done. And then Jesus says, and then the tax collector beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, it is the tax collector who goes home in right standing with God at the end of the day. Because what Jesus did is he reserved all of his harshest criticism for people who were self-righteous. People who knew they were sinners, Jesus was like, got patience for you all day long. Come hang out with me. Let's be friends. And people who were self-righteous or who were just uh, in their own eyes, they, they were in right standing with God because of all their behavior. Jesus had the harshest things to say about them. They were unwilling to admit their own brokenness. And here's what Jesus knew that so many of us tend to miss. Self-righteousness, the self-righteous, lack self-awareness. That, that the less self-awareness I have, the more self-righteousness I have. But that my self-righteousness really decreases and really diminishes as I become more self-aware. As I start to realize my own shortcomings and the birth of Jesus, the fact that God came to dwell with us. Christmas is a season that should remind us of something that we should actually be aware of every single day of the year. The fact that Jesus came to be with us should cause us to be painfully self-aware of the fact that we have so much in common with people we think are nothing like us. We have a lot more in common with other sinners than we do with God. That just because we have different insecurities and different fears and different dysfunctions and different sins, we have a lot more in common together. And the fact that we have any self-righteousness at all inside of us is an indication that we lack self-awareness of what is going on around us. The reasons I don't move towards others is because it's complicated. It's uncomfortable. Those aren't really reasons at all. Those are excuses. And the more aware I am of the grace and the mercy that God has extended to me, the more inclined I should be to extend that same grace and mercy to you. And when something surfaces in me that causes me not to want to move in your direction because it's complicated, because it's uncomfortable, because it's awkward, because there's tension, shouldn't that be the time that I remember the birth of Jesus? Shouldn't, I be, shouldn't that be the time that I remember, oh, God came to be with us? In spite of us, those who are nothing like him, doesn't that remove any excuse I have not to do the same for you? Christmas shatters our excuses for avoiding complicated and uncomfortable. And one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, one of his followers, a guy named John, he writes about this. He he describes Jesus coming, and he followed Jesus from the beginning. He was there the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed and arrested, and then uh, he stood at the foot of the cross. He saw Jesus die. He, and he stood and, and he had his arm around Mary and, and comforted her as Jesus died. And in that moment, John thought, it's over. Everything I've given my life to the last few years is over. This whole movement, is, it's, it's died before it even began. Didn't know what to do with himself. And then 
He found his faith ignited and hope restored when he met his resurrected Savior. And as he gets to his old age, he, he sets out to, to write about his experiences, to describe, man, here's everything I've seen, here's everything I've experienced. And it wasn't, he never sat down and went, I think I'll write the Bible today. He didn't have the, the, any inclination that we would be reading this thousands of years later. He just went, you know what? It's important that I preserve everything I've seen and everything I've experienced. And he, he's actually lived into old age, one of the last living followers of Jesus. And he survived the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And at some point he hears that uh, Paul has been executed, the apostle Paul. He hears that Peter, one of his friends and one of Jesus' followers has been executed. And he sits down to write his experiences, everything he's seen, everything that he's heard with Jesus. He's thinking about all that he's experienced. And he sits out to write and he's like, man, he's the first one to really condense everything we know about God into one word. So he's writing to this group of people in the first century. And he basically says this, God is love. It's like, if I could put it into one word, if I, if I could just condense all that I experienced, all that I knew, God is love. God is love. And he, he starts out to write his experience with Jesus. And when he begins to write it, it's like he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus as some other accounts do. He starts with a miracle even bigger than that in his own mind. It's, it's this idea that when everything seemed hopeless, when, when the whole nation of Israel was about as dark as it could possibly be, John would put it in these words. He says, the word became flesh. He says, I, I don't know how to say this. He's like, I'm trying to figure out the best language for this. And he's like, it, it, the, the logos, the, the, the word that we have is the logos. And for people in, uh, you know, in Greek society, this idea of logos, the word, it was, it was like the, the force that sort of ran the universe. It was the energy through the universe. It was the uncreated creator. And John puts language to it and he goes, it's like the word became flesh. It's like, he goes, I don't know how to say it. It's like the uncreated creator took on flesh and bone. And then he would say this, he took on flesh and he made his home among us. Like he actually put down roots. He didn't show up and get his gift and then check his watch and leave early. He made his home among us. He put down roots. Like he, he, he really like made us his people. He determined as much as we don't have in common, he would make us his people. And then John says this at, at one point, there's a story about John. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's what really happened. And this just describes how different we were from Jesus, how different Jesus was from us. At a certain point, when he was heading to Jerusalem, he said, we always travel around Samaria. We never go through Samaria because Samaria, it was an area where, man, they were kind of shunned people. They were a people group that was, that was different than us, and we shunned them, and they shunned us. And yet, Jesus was so intent on getting to Jerusalem that he said, nope, we're going straight through Samaria. And as we're traveling through Samaria, we, we stopped at a village and asked if we could stay the night, and they wouldn't let us stay. They wouldn't give us food. And in the first century, in particular, hospitality was a huge value for people. And it was dangerous to leave people out at night, and so it was just one of those things that was kind of a custom that you would, you would take people in at night, especially travelers, and uh, you would provide hospitality for them. And here's... Jesus and his disciples are traveling through Samaria and they receive no hospitality. And so uh, John and his brother James go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, just say the word and we will call down fire from heaven and consume every person in this village. And Jesus says, chillax. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but 
He rebukes them. And, and it's, like, it's like John and James are looking back at this story and they're like, oh, this is, I, I can't even believe we said that. I mean, it's so embarrassing. Because the next week we would then go to Jerusalem and we would learn that he's actually heading to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the people that we wanted to destroy. It's like John would say, I'm just telling you, he was so different than us. He was so different than us. He was nothing like us. And so God came near and he made his home among us so that there would be no distance between us, between us and God. And people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus because he didn't distance himself from anyone. There was no group of people with whom he acted superior. There was no group of people to whom he acted better than. And so what is it in me? that sometimes causes me to act that way toward any group of people. If we take the Christmas story seriously, then it forces us to ask this question because the word became flesh and made his home among us. If perfection didn't keep its distance, who am I to keep my distance? So John would continue. He says, the word became flesh. He made his home among us. He says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And John would say, full of grace and truth. It's like, he goes, this is all all I know. And in my experience with him, it's like he was full on grace and he was full on truth. And it's so difficult to explain. I'm telling you, it's like he was filled to the top with grace. He was filled to the top with truth. He wasn't the balance of grace and truth. And this is how we tend to think about it. It's like there's this spectrum and you got grace on one side and you got truth on the other and you got to just keep the balance all the time and adjust the fulcrum. It's like, ah, oh, if we lean too heavy into truth, better get some grace out there. Oh, we're starting to get a little bit too grace filled. Better hit people with some truth. And we're always trying to balance it. And he goes, no, it's not even like that. It's like he was 100% grace all the time. And at the same time, he was 100% truth all the time. And sometimes this is where we end up with like, you got truth churches that are just like, they just clobber people with the truth all the time. Thou shalt, thou shalt, and thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And it's like, oh, I'm leaving feeling guilty again. Great, come back next week. And then you got grace churches that are just like, let's not tell anybody anything that they're doing wrong or they should never change. Just, just God loves you and don't change anything about yourself. And everybody just live however you want to live and just sort of wallow in your brokenness. It'll be great. John says, it wasn't, don't get into either of those ditches. Don't think that Jesus was the balance of grace and truth. It wasn't even the balance. It was like he was full to the brim of grace and he was full to the brim of truth. And he never dumbed down the truth. And at the same time, he never dialed back the grace. It was just amazing to watch. It was amazing to witness. And John would say, not only was it amazing, it took away all of my excuses. I would find myself, after the resurrection, I would find myself in groups of people I never would have associated with before. I would find myself in huddles, in circles with Gentiles. In the past, according to my Jewish custom, I would have been ceremonially unclean. I wouldn't be allowed into the temple, but because of Jesus, all of my self-righteousness is gone because I've become so painfully self-aware. And so I would associate with Gentiles. I would associate with women. I would associate with slaves, people who have just purchased their freedom from slavery and people who have just sold themselves into slavery, people who never would have associated with me before. I'm sitting now in small huddles in circles and we're worshiping together the same king. It's because Emmanuel, God with us, in spite of us, removed all of my excuses. I lost all self-righteousness 
because I became so painfully self-aware. And Christmas is often a reminder that there are problems we can't solve, people we can't control, expectations that we can't meet. But Christmas should be the reminder that problems and people and expectations should never become excuses to distance ourselves, even if it's complicated and even if it's uncomfortable. So let me ask you, this Christmas, are you facing complicated and uncomfortable? Like, this is the perfect time to do for someone in spite of someone. This is the perfect time to do for someone else what your heavenly Father, through Christ Jesus, has done for you. And again, John would write, and he would say this, God showed us, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. If Jesus was able to make his home among us, and if he loves us so much that he's willing to die for us, then surely we can show up for each other. Surely we can forgive each other. Surely we can figure out how to love each other. Surely we can sacrifice a little for each other, even when it's complicated and even when it's uncomfortable. And then John would say this, and it's so powerful. A few verses later, John says this, we love because, because they're so lovable. We love because people are so easy to love. It just comes naturally. We love because we will get something in return. Like, I know if I show up and just kind of show them love, I can get that gift and go. We love because it's the nice thing to do. I mean, I want to be a nice person. It's the right thing to do, even though they really don't deserve it, even though I really don't want to. I guess I will. What, what John says makes all the difference. And it isn't even because, like, all right, I'm convinced it's the right thing to do. I'm I'll just do it because it's the right thing to do. It, it goes so much more than that. It makes all the difference. John would say this. We love because... He first loved us. I mean, this is, this is why I can love other people, John would say, because I become so self-aware of the love that God has for me that to not extend that to someone else just doesn't make any sense. That makes all the difference. All of our self-righteousness, John would say, was replaced by self-awareness. And we came to the realization if God was willing to make his home among us, and if God was willing to love us so much that he would die for us, in spite of us, we could no longer have any excuse for not loving the people who are just like us. And before we push back on that, at some point in our lives, you need to know, someone is going to love you in spite of you. And someone's going to love me in spite of me. What if we did that? What if with everything that gets complicated and uncomfortable? What if so everywhere along the way we feel tension, where we feel awkward, where we feel like it's just kind of, they just rub you the wrong way? What if we just said, yeah, but man, at Christmas, God became one of us. Perfection didn't distance himself from us. And, and what if we love not thinking what I can get in return and not even thinking, well, it's kind of the right thing to do, but what if we just remind ourselves what God did for us? John would say, we love because he first loved us. What if that characterized Jesus' followers? What if that caught on? See, that changed the world 
at one point. That rocked the empire at one point, and it has the potential to do the same thing for us today. We love in spite of one another because God loves us in spite of us. After all, if it weren't for us, and if we weren't such a mess, we wouldn't have Christmas. Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. If it weren't for us, there would be no Christmas. We are the reasons for the season. And practical application. When you arrive at the family celebration and they open the door and there stands in front of you that mess <laughs> with all of their imperfections, with all of their dysfunction and with all of their insecurity, with all of their sin that's different than yours, and when that person cuts you off in traffic or that neighbor that you just can't seem to get along with or that coworker who just seems to steal all of your ideas, remember what you have in common. You are both the reason for the season. You're the reason that God came here through Jesus, and you're the reason he stuck around. So God so loved this messy, messed up world that he showed up as one of us and made his home among us and took away all of our excuses to do anything less for those around us. You are the reason for the season. I'm the reason for the season. So let's love each other as Jesus has loved us, even when it's complicated, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's awkward, even when there's tension, because that's what Jesus did for us. And then he invites us to follow him. This is the God who says, look, I just want you to follow me. I just want you to, if you just put your trust in me, God loved the world so much, he sent Jesus into this world. Not to judge the world, but to rescue the world, to save the world. And then Jesus would say this, that anyone who puts their trust in him, all that means is this. Okay, God, I'm not trusting in, this would be the self-righteousness, I'm not trusting in my ability to somehow be right with you based on how I behave. Based on, uh, you know, doing the right things and saying the right things and filtering my behavior and filtering my language and, and making sure I do the right things in the right way. Like, I just know I will fall short. I just know I can't keep that standard. And so I will fall short. And if I'm dependent on my own self-righteousness or self-rightness to be right with God, I'm going to fall short. So instead, I'm going to put my trust in you and the work that you've already done when you allowed yourself to be put to death on the cross for me. And Jesus says, anybody who puts their trust in him, anybody, everybody who puts their trust in him, who simply says, I'm not relying on my own behavior and my own self-rightness, but instead, God, I've become painfully self-aware that I will never measure up. So I'm trusting you that based on who you are, that you'll forgive my sins and that you'll accept me. And Jesus says, anyone who does that will not perish, will not be lost to relationship with God, but will be accepted into God's family for eternity. So if you've never said yes to that invitation, it isn't something you behave your way into. It's not something you uh, earn your way into. It's not even something you church attend your way into. It's just an invitation that's been extended to you by the God of the universe who came to earth to be one of us in spite of us for you and for me. So if you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to say yes to that invitation. And you can do that right where you sit, right where you're watching, by just agreeing with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I have walked away from you. And I am so thankful that you never walk away from me. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world to become one of us, to show us what God is like. And God, I wanna say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter. I wanna be a part of your family. And I know I can't earn my way in, so I'm, I'm, 
I'm putting my trust in Jesus and the work that Jesus has already done on my behalf. Help me to trust you and follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every single one of us. During this time of year, it, it, it can, we can get so caught up in the schedule and the busyness and sometimes the tension and the awkwardness and the complicated and the uncomfortable. And so I pray that you would remind us during this season, we love because you've loved us. And as you have loved us, may we love others. And as we do that, may our lives be a reflection of your love, your grace to those around us. May it point them to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.